You are listening to audio from Pastor Mark Driscoll. To find more helpful content like this, as well as daily devotions, Ask Pastor Mark videos, resources for leaders, and much more, visit markdriscoll.org. While there, you can also make a donation that will help support the ministry and subscribe to continue getting Bible-based teaching. If you live in or are visiting the greater Phoenix Valley, please feel free to come and see Pastor Mark at the Trinity Church in Scottsdale, Arizona. Thank you for listening and being a part of Mark Driscoll Ministries. And remember, it's all about Jesus. All right, good times. If you got a Bible, go to Luke chapter 1. Today we're going to meet the girl who raised God. We're going to meet Mary and Joseph, and they are such an interesting part of our culture. How many of you put up a manger scene somewhere at your house, and there's Mary and Joseph? How many of you, your Christmas cards include at least some in the stack, Mary and Joseph? They're on television, they're in movies, they're part of the cultural narrative. And what's interesting is that we know a little about them, but we oftentimes don't delve deep into their story to really understand from them. And their story might be one that is more timely than ever. I was talking to a, a guy, he works in data. He's, he's, he's a guy with more degrees than Fahrenheit, super smart guy. And he works in something called mega data. And they pull, this will freak you out, uh, they pull all the information they can on you. So his firm, has purchased 5,000 data points. All your social media posts, your purchasing habits, your frequent shopper cards, your travel, any purchase of real estate, uh, your internet surfing, and they try and get a psychographic profile. Who are you? What motivates you? What products would be interesting for you? A little scary. So I asked him, I said, uh, what have you learned? He said, well, among millennials, so that is teens, 20s, and early 30s, he said, consistently, there are two major issues that they are most concerned about. Number one, marriage. Number two, parenting. The young people who grew up in broken homes, they want to figure out how to get in love, fall in love, stay in love, stick together with a good marriage, and they want to know how to raise children in such a way that their children grow and flourish in the context of a loving married household. I said, well, that's amazing because that really is the, the strength of the church of Jesus Christ. There's not a lot of places you can go to learn about marriage or parenting. So this great cultural longing is ultimately something that God has burdened our hearts for. And what we see in the Bible today is an amazing example from a young couple. They're, they're, they're young, they're in love, they're getting ready to be married and start their family. And so Mary and Joseph serve as an extraordinary example for everyone, but especially for younger people, single and or married. So we pick up the story in Luke chapter one, learning that you need a word from God. And here's the story. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God. I love, I love how the Bible just sometimes understates things, right? Like, and an angel was sent. Well, of course. No, an angel was sent from God. So there's, there's, there's two angels in the Bible that have names, Michael and Gabriel. So they stand in the presence of God. They serve and they minister. And then Gabriel gets this deployment to, to go give a message because what angels are, they're messengers and ministers. As messengers, they speak on behalf of God. As ministers, they serve on behalf of God. These are angelic beings. They're not human beings. They don't have a, a day of their death as we do. They don't grow hungry and tired as we do. They don't have the physical limitations that we do. They're spirit beings created by God to serve and to speak as messengers and ministers. And so he is deployed. Angel Gabriel is deployed to go bring a particular word from God. Now, can you imagine this? God's like, okay, I need you to go tell somebody. Okay, I'll bring that. So, so he's the mailman. Gabriel's the mailman was sent uh, from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth. Nazareth is not a great town. How many of you grew up in not a great town? A small, dumpy, rural, horrible, awful hick town. You got out. Congratulations. I'm so proud of you. Now, I've been to Nazareth in the days of, now it's sort of commercialized, but in the days of Jesus, this was in the middle of nowhere. And this was a place that only had one well. And so you couldn't sustain a large population. That well is still flowing. It is anticipated that's where Mary and Jesus would have went and drawn water. And so what you're looking at is a population of people that are maybe 50, 60, 80, 100 people, not a big town. Not a, how many of you grew up in a really tiny town? A tiny, tiny town. And everybody knows everybody's business sort of a gossipy sort of small town. So let's say there's a hundred people. Uh, how many kids do you think there were? I don't know, let's say 20. 
So how many boys were there? 10 boys, 10 girls. Let me just submit this to you. You kind of knew who you were going to marry, right? You kind of knew, you're like, there's 10 of them. One of them hates me. The other one I hate. So we're down to eight now, you know, and the one has discernment. So they're out. So now I'm down to seven, right? You kind of knew who you were going to marry because your family knew their family. There's only a couple of kids and you're going to get married and you're going to grow up in the same little town. In John chapter one, verse 46, a guy named Nathaniel asked this question. He asked, can anything good come from Nazareth? (laughs) It's one of those towns. How many of you have made the drive from here to California and you've stopped along the way because you really needed to go to the bathroom, okay? And if it wasn't for the fact that you really needed to go to the bathroom, you wouldn't stop. And you stop in one of those towns. Those towns, they don't even have a name. They just have corn dogs, the world's worst coffee, and the bathroom as low as gas. Four things. So you're like, that's all they got. I was driving back from California not long ago. We pulled over in one of these really small little towns, didn't even necessarily have a name. I pulled in and I thought, well, I'm going to look around and see what else there is here other than the gas station. Answer, there's nothing here. There's just bad corn dogs, horrible coffee, a bathroom, and expensive gas. That's it. You ask the locals, what do you do here? The answer is nothing. Why do people come here? Because they have to. Um, This is where you end up. This is not where you aspire to, right? In that day, there were no kids going, oh Lord, someday I hope when I grow up, I can move to Nazareth and eat the corn dogs. Nobody wanted to go there. It's that kind of town. It's this small out of the way town that wasn't a big deal. Nobody really did anything interesting there. Nobody went there. Nobody came from there. And the people were poor peasants. So most of their homes No indoor plumbing, no indoor heating, no running water, no electricity. Next time you go out to your car today and you go to get in, remember that most of their homes were probably about the size of a parking stall. This is really simple living. You want water, you go over to the one well, you pull it and you bring it home and that's your water. Your animals share a little small portion of your home. You grow up in this small town. Many of the kids are illiterate. They're just working simple jobs with their parents and this is a very basic lifestyle. Nobody ever came from Nazareth. Nobody ever went to Nazareth and now they get an angelic visit from Gabriel. Big deal, right? Can you imagine that? Can you imagine you're at the Texaco eating your corn dog, gassing up your car? You're like, hey, what's up with the wings? I'm Gabriel. I'm here to deliver a message. God is visiting nowhere. Huh, that's amazing. That, that's the story, okay? That's the story to a virgin, right? So uh, a gal who's not yet consummated her marriage, a betrothed. So this is like engagement, but only more serious. We have engagement where it's like, hey, we're going to get married. In their day, they had betrothal, which was more intense than engagement. And that was, you were actually legally bound together. You would announce your wedding publicly, and it's coming in a year, and you'd put a year on the clock to prepare for your wedding. You didn't consummate your covenant. You didn't live together. But to cancel the betrothal actually required a legal divorce. So this is, this is such a big deal that you announce it publicly. We're betrothed. Now the whole town knows, which means to undo this is very complicated. So think of an engaged couple. How many of you know an engaged couple? How many of you know an engaged couple? Isn't that the cutest season of their whole life? Right? Grace and I have the honor of doing a lot of premarital counseling over the years, and that is officially the cutest season of their whole life. They're both happy, they're both joyful, and they both have no idea what awaits them. And they're... <laughs> And they're, they're like, oh, it's amazing. I love you. I love you too. I love you more. No, I love you more. We're going to get married. We're going to get married and we're going to pray together and we're going to kiss each other and we're going to pray some more and kiss some more and kiss some more and kiss some more. And, and then we're going to have a baby and then we're going to kiss the baby. And then Jesus is going to come back before we get old and sick of each other. Yay. No, they have no clue what awaits them, right? <laughs> They're in that sort of hopeful, optimistic sort of, oh, and they lived happily ever after. And, and, and they're going to Target and trying to figure out what a doily is. And the gal's trying to figure out her dress and how she could find the world's ugliest dresses for the bridesmaid. And ladies, I know that you do that because every photo I've ever seen, the bride looks amazing and the bridesmaids look awful because you put the bridesmaids in ugly dresses so that you look prettier. And that's just an observation. So what, what is happening at this point... Mary's trying to figure out her dress. They're trying to figure out the bridesmaids' dresses. He's trying to figure out the groomsmen. They're going to Target, putting together their, their, their list of stuff. They've made the announcement. They've told the family it's a big celebration. 
And this guy's name was Joseph. He's from the line and the family of the great King David. And here's Joseph. Joseph is a very simple guy. You know what's amazing? As you read the whole Bible, there's very little Joseph says. How many of you had a dad like that? Your dad's just, he kind of works with his hands and doesn't say very much. Joseph doesn't, he's like, uh, I don't know. He, he doesn't say a lot. Mary does a lot of talking. Joseph doesn't say a lot. He's sort of the strong, silent, you know, calluses on his hand, works a job, carpenter type guy. Here's what we know about Joseph. He grew up in Nazareth. So which probably means since they were little, he saw Mary. He's like, I like her. I still like her. As they get older, he's thinking, I'm going to marry her. And, and they kind of know they are going to be together and their families kind of know they're going to be together. So Joseph's in a rural town. He's a hardworking kid. These people, just so you know, they're probably young. Mary and Joseph are probably young. Many commentators believe that she was 12, 13, 14 years of age. Junior high girl. How many of you? Oh yeah. Wow. One mother who was paying attention just said, wow, wow, wow. Because 13 year old girl, you're like, I would give them a cell phone, but I don't know if they could handle that. And here's God, raise him. That's a big deal, right? That's a lot. Joseph is maybe 15, 16, 17, 18, probably not as old as his early 20s. Teenage kid. How many of you wouldn't let your teenage kid drive? How many of you, you you would not let your teenage kid marry and have Jesus? Okay, How many of you, you're just like, I'm, I'm, I'm having an anxiety attack, just even considering that possibility that my high school kid is raising God. Don't drop him. We have no idea what happens. I mean, that's a lot of responsibility for a couple of teenage kids. It's a lot. Now, what's amazing is God could have chosen anyone. He chooses them. He could have went anywhere. He goes to Nazareth. I mean, this is unbelievable. And, uh, And so this guy, Joseph, He's poor, he's rural, he's working class, he's simple, he's humble. He's got his dream girl. And and here's what he's been doing. He's been waiting to get married. What he's done, he's got a job. Single guys, write that down. Get a job. Every woman wants to know two things. Do you have a job and a Bible, right? If you do, you're my type because that's the type I'm looking for, right? So he's reading God's word. He's walking with God. He's got a job. He's moved out of his parents' house. He's saving up money. He's putting money aside. He's met his dream girl. They're engaged. They've gotten all of their announcements ready. The date is on the calendar. And here comes some angel to give him some word. Here's the big idea. You need a word from God for your life. They needed a word from God for their life. God is going to bring them a word. Now, let me say, most of the time, God speaks to us in usual ways because we have typical lives. Sometimes he speaks in unusual ways because for some people, he has for them an atypical life. Most of us, here's how God speaks to us. Well, first and foremostly, we get a word from God, from the word of God. The vast majority of all that we need to know regarding God's will is already written in God's word. So if you'll study, you'll memorize, you'll meditate upon God's word, then you will get a word from God, from the word of God. And that answers the vast majority of our questions and it gives us direction for our life. In addition, God speaks to us, gives us his word through prayer. When I was a new Christian, I thought, okay, prayer is where I tell God what to do. And then I realized no prayer is where God tells me what to do. This is not that he needs to know something, but I need to know something. And not that he needs to do something, but I need to do something. That prayer is first and foremost, not for God, it's for me. God doesn't need prayer. He knows what he's doing. I need prayer. I need to know what God wants me to do. And so prayer is where God changes and redirects our will. We come into alignment with God's will through prayer. And so through scripture reading and prayer and also wise counsel, that's how we receive a word from God. God will speak through those who are wiser than us, often older than us, who have gathered wisdom through experience. So if you want to know what to do with your finances, go find somebody who loves God and is good with their money. You want to figure out what to do with your marriage, go find somebody that's got a good marriage and ask them questions and take notes. You you want to figure out how to be a good parent, find people who are good parents, ask them questions, learn, receive from them wisdom. 
God speaks through his word. God speaks to us through prayer. And God speaks to us through his people who give us wise counsel. The vast majority of the questions regarding our life, the direction and trajectory of our life, it is navigated for us according to these ways that God speaks and gives us a word. But sometimes God has something unusual and atypical and he speaks in an unusual way. Sometimes, I'll give you three examples, this can be God speaking directly to you. This is unusual, but it happens in the Bible. I had this experience when I was 19, brand new Christian. I'm out at a men's retreat. I'm walking in the woods by the river. I talked to God. God, what do you want me to do? God literally spoke to me audibly. Said, preach the Bible. Mary Grace, preach the Bible, train men, plant churches. Give me four things to do. I go to my pastor. I said, I I think this was God. Is it God? Because 1 John says, don't believe every spirit, but test the spirits because there are false spirits that give false information. The pastor said, we receive that as God's word to you. You now need to spend your whole life obeying God's word to you. Mary Grace, preach the Bible, train men, plant churches. So I'm 46 now since I was 19. That's what I've been doing until I hear otherwise. Sometimes God speaks to you. Sometimes God speaks through a vision or a dream. A vision is often when we are awake and a dream is when we are asleep. And it's almost like watching a film. You see the future and what God is doing and God is preparing you to walk into some next season of life and destiny. I've had a few of those and it does happen. And then occasionally God sends an angel. I don't think I've ever had that, but Hebrews does say that sometimes by the practicing of hospitality, we entertain angels without even knowing it. So sometimes we don't know it was an angel. In this occasion, they need, Joseph needs, Mary needs a word from God. Now, let me say this. Up until this point, they have been walking according to the usual means. They have been studying the Bible, learning God's word. They have been praying and they have been seeking wise counsel. They're living life according to the information, the revelation that God provided. And let me submit this to you. That is how I would encourage you as your pastor who loves you. If you want a word from God, it is primarily through scripture, prayer, and wise counsel. And that will give you sufficient information for the direction and trajectory of your life. And if God has anything else to say, he will do so in an extraordinary and unusual way. But God doesn't always do that. God doesn't always do that. There are 400 years before the end of the New Testament, the beginning of the New Testament, and there's no indication that God worked or spoke in a supernatural way. God doesn't always do that. That's why sometimes, let's say, for example, you're at the grocery store and you're like, Lord, I don't know, Cheerios or cornflakes. It's not like the angel Gabriel will march up and say, da, 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 I have a word for you. It's Cheerios. Oftentimes, we just get to make our decisions according to wise counsel, prayer, and that directs us according to the word of God. And if God has anything else to say to you, he will send it to you supernaturally. That's what happens for this couple. But until this point, they're living their life as we should be living our life. The story continues that we are to live our life kingdom down. And the virgin's name was Mary. Mary is an extraordinary example for all women, particularly young women. We live in a day when, I don't know about you, I'm not really excited about the pop stars that are put forth for my daughter to emulate. Can I just say that? They have not enough clothes and not enough wisdom, all right? Uh, I, I, I wish they had a Bible and a hoodie, right? That, that would be my encouragement, okay? <laughs> we set forth for young women examples. Have you seen, I've got a 13-year-old daughter, a 19-year-old daughter. Have you seen these preteen shows or these teen shows? Wow, wow, wow. If you hate your kids, let them watch those shows alone, okay? It, it is, un, it's like, oh, she's got a boyfriend and a girlfriend and a, he hates her dad and sneaks around on her cell phone and breaks commandments. And we just think, oh, that's natural. That's just the teen years. Not every teenager needs to be rebellious or foolish. Not every teenager needs to shipwreck their life. Not every teenager needs a head-on collision with some boy. Okay, let me just, just speak that out there. Somebody please pick it up and take it home. Okay, that being said... What we see, and if you, if you, if you were that kid, somebody like, I was that kid. I, I was, oh my, oh yeah, the teen years. Oh yeah, yeah, that was not good. Okay, God forgives you. God loves you. Maybe you got a kid and you're like, oh, really? Can I trade him in, Lord, for this, this one's defective. 
Okay, there is grace, there is forgiveness, there is hope, but ultimately, I just don't believe that every child automatically gets somewhere around the teen years a free extended time of rebellion and self-destruction and folly. Okay, I just don't, and I got four teenagers, so pray for me. But, you know, I, I want to speak life over those who are young. And what I love about Mary she is not dating, relating, fornicating. She's not trying to be some, you know, preteen Disney princess finding some boyfriend with a bike. I mean, ridiculous nonsense. Instead, what she's doing, she's worshiping God. She's saving herself for marriage. She's walking in the wisdom of God. And she was just a godly young woman. You can be a godly young woman. We don't need to have all this crazy, defiant rebellion. She has a relationship with God. She loves God. She's a godly woman saving herself for marriage. And he, that is the angel, came to her and said, can you imagine this? How many of you ladies, when you were a teenage girl, if an angel showed up to talk to you, you'd have been like, what did I do? Whatever I did, I'm sorry, I won't do it again. I mean, it's a scary moment if you get an angelic vision. Greetings, oh favored one. That's a beautiful term. It means grace. God looked at the whole earth and the father determined that he would send his son through the womb of one woman. And he said, Mary. He didn't pick someone in a big town, but in a small town. He didn't pick someone who was rich. He picked someone who was poor. Didn't pick someone who was powerful, someone who was powerless. But she's godly. She's godly. You may not be powerful. You may not be rich. But if you're godly, then maybe God would choose you to do some extraordinary things for his kingdom. I love that she's favored. That is God's choosing. Do you know that we who belong to the Lord Jesus Christ, we all stand in the same line with Mary that God has chosen us. We didn't choose him. He chose us long before we chose him. Mary didn't say, God, I, I, really, I was reading Isaiah, the virgin's gonna have a baby. Pick me, pick me, pick me, pick me. God just said, no, I pick you, I pick you, I pick you, I pick you. If you're a Christian, it's because God picked you. He loves you. He chose you to be his. That's what he does for her. Greetings, O favored one. The Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying. What is she feeling? Anxiety, stress. She's got consternation, fear. What does the angel say? Don't be afraid. I've said this before, but I think it bears repeating. Consider for a moment all the commands in the Bible. What would you think would be the number one most frequent command in the whole Bible, the thing that God says over and over and over and over? I'll tell you what it is, about 150 times. Fear not, fear not, fear not, fear not. Or do not be afraid, do not be afraid, do not be afraid. Why does God say that so often? because we're so frequently gripped by fear and anxiety and worry that as we look and peer headlong into the future, we're wondering, am I going to be okay? What's going to happen? There's so much that could go wrong. This seems to be pain, misery, loneliness that awaits me. What happens then is that fear grips the mind and then anxiety overtakes the body. This is where you get stressed, you can't sleep, you start self-medicating, you're anxious, you're depressed. We become false prophets. We, we prophesy a future in which there is no grace of God. And so over and over and over, God says, fear not, fear not, fear not. The angel here tells Mary, fear not, fear not, fear not. Let me say this. What he doesn't say is you have nothing to be afraid of. I, I don't know if you've ever said that to somebody. You have nothing to be afraid of. That's not true. You're not paying attention. There's tons to be afraid of. <laughs> Here's what Mary has to be afraid of. Okay, let, let me just recount her story. Small town, everybody knows your business. She's going to hear in a moment that uh, she's going to be pregnant without a husband. Okay, what do you think her reputation is going to be in this small town? 
Oh, that's Mary. She's so godly. She's favored of God. An angel visited her and gave her pregnancy through a miracle. (gasps) That's not how it's going to go. She's pregnant, but they've not been married yet. Uh, I wonder how many guys she slept with. I bet you they don't even know who the baby's father is. In fact, it is possible, rarely done, but in the laws of that day, she could be put to death for adultery. Some years later, when the Lord Jesus had grown up, he was teaching and some people came along. They had the same attitude as many who would have lived in this town. And they said, at least we know who our father is. See, the reputation was Mary was not a godly girl. She was an ungodly girl. She wasn't a virgin. She was a gal who lacked self-control that she slept with so many men that she didn't even know who the baby's father was, which was a shameful thing in an ancient, religious, small town filled with gossip. And the reputation of Joseph would have been equally sullied. Joseph, why are you going to marry her? She's a virgin. Pregnant virgin? What? What are you talking about? Oh, no, 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 no. It's a miracle. In Nazareth? Yeah, an angel told me. I'm sure he did, right? (laughs) Joseph, are you this gullible and stupid? Right? See, we look at it 2,000 years later, and we know how the story works out. They're in the middle of it. We see by sight, they were looking by faith. I love how Jesus handled it too. They come along and they say, at least we know who our father is. If you remember his line, it's good. He said, uh, yeah, your father's the devil. (laughs) Drop the mic. (laughs) Mary has a lot to be afraid of, amen? You be put to death. The man's going to leave. You're a single mother with a destroyed reputation in a small town filled with gossip. You're totally poor, have no money, nobody to provide for you. Maybe you can be put to death. Best case scenario, maybe you're a broke single mother raising a kid with no support and a destroyed reputation and no hopes of marriage in a small gossip town with no way to get out. And maybe she's even potentially illiterate and doesn't even have an opportunity for a career path forward. There's a lot. If you're 13, 14, to be really worried about. And God says, the Lord is with you. The Lord is with you. And he says, do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. These two things go together. God's presence is the answer to your anxiety. God's presence is the answer to your anxiety. I looked at almost all the occasions or all the occasions where God says, fear not. In the same orbit, he says, almost every time, for I am with you. How many of you have raised a kid and in the middle of the night you hear a blood-curdling scream and you think they had a nightmare or something terrible has happened? You go running into the room and you realize that the child is fine but they're gripped by fear, they're gripped by anxiety. They've had a nightmare, a night terror. And for them, they, they are in a place where they are overcome with fear and anxiety. A couple of our children struggle with night terrors. First thing you do, you walk in, you make sure they're okay, and you realize they are okay. They're just gripped with fear and anxiety. Immediately, as the father, I would speak to them. I love you, I'm here, dad's right here draw near to them with a comforting voice. When God says, do not be afraid, you can receive that as a command or an invitation. I think if you receive it as a command, it may not be that helpful. If Let's say your kid's having a night terror and, and you walk into the room and you say, do not be afraid. The kid's like, I did not help. Right? <laughs> did not help. Right? You, just, you, gave me, you, you raised your voice and gave me another command. An invitation is, Dad's here. I love you. You're going to be okay. I'm with you. I'll protect you. Everything's going to be all right. That's an invitation. God is a father where his kids, 
there are some times that we have our own terrors, our fears and anxieties. And God doesn't come in and say, you have nothing to worry about. Instead, he comes in and says, you have much to worry about, but I want you to focus on my presence and not your problem because I will walk with you through your problem. You're not an orphan. You're a son or a daughter. What this means is that God may not get you around it, but God will walk with you through it. That's what he's promising her. That's what he's promising her. Mary's like, I'm worried about how this is going to work out. God says, I'm with you. Mary, I'll take your hand. I'm your dad. I know what's going to happen. I'm walking with you. We're going to be okay. You're going to be okay because you're not alone. It is better for you to have trouble with God's presence than no trouble without God's presence. It's God's presence that really makes the difference. And God promises to be with her. She tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. He's chosen you. It's a special mission. It's going to cost you a lot. But, but ultimately, God has a significant work for you. The story continues. And behold, you will conceive in your womb. You're going to be a mom. How many of you ladies, that in and of itself will give you a little panic attack. And you'll bear a son and you'll call his name Jesus, which means God saves us from our sins. This is amazing. The two most important, influential, significant marriages and families in the history of the world. Who do you think they are? If I was going to ask you that, the two most important, significant marriages and families in the history of the world, I would submit to you it's Adam and Eve, and through them came sin, and Joseph and Mary, and in their home came the Savior. And what God is telling her is, Jesus is coming, and he will save people from their sins. He will be great. The ruler in that day was King Herod. He was called Herod the Great. And, and, and the angel's saying, you know what? Herod's not great. Your son will be great. Your son will be great and will be called the son of the most high. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father, David. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever and ever. And of his kingdom, there'll be no end. A couple of things here about Jesus. Number one, he comes as the fulfillment of scripture. Mary would have known this, that when Adam and Eve, our first parents, sinned in the garden, God gave to them a promise in Genesis 3.15 that a woman would come and that woman would give birth to a son and that son would be a savior and he would conquer Satan, that he would forgive sin. And so from that moment forward, God's people were awaiting the coming of a woman who would have a son. The story continues to Isaiah 7, 14, 700 years before Jesus was even born. That great statement that you'll see on the Christmas cards, they're going to start arriving very soon in your mailbox. It says, behold, the virgin shall be with child And the promise is made 700 years before the birth of Jesus. That woman is coming, that son is coming, and you will know that it is her because he will be born of a virgin, a young, unmarried, chaste woman. And so these two historical clues gave everyone anticipation and expectation for the coming of a woman who would bring forth a son, that she would be a virgin, that he would be a savior, that a kingdom would come through the womb of a woman. And, and, and the angel shows up and says, that's you, O favored one, O chosen, O graced one. The, the father has chosen you, daughter, to bring forth his son. So Jesus comes as the fulfillment of scripture. Number two, he comes as a man. That Mary is going to give birth to a child. She has to birth the child. She has to feed the child. She has to change the child. The baby needs a nap. The, the baby needs nourishment. The baby needs care. That That God became a man, that God who is outside of time enters into time, that the creator enters creation, that he who is in glory comes in humility. It's mind bending. And sometimes we think of Jesus as something less than a full baby. How many of you recently have held a baby? Just think, God came like this. Like, can you imagine Mary like, I'm changing God's diaper. I mean... uh, It's because God came to humble himself and to identify with us. He comes fully man. He comes fully God. The title of Jesus is given that he is the son of the most high. 
That means there are angels and there are demons and there are kings and there are kingdoms and there are those who are high and exalted and there is one who is the most high and that is the creator God, the ruler of heaven and earth, the maker of all things, the one to whom we will all die and stand before and give account. He is the most high. He is the Most High. And what he says is that Jesus is coming as the Son of the Most High. That means that he is of the same, that he holds all the same attributes, that he occupies the same office, that he has the same dominion and authority like Father, like Son, that the inheritance will go to the Son, that the rule of the nations will go to the Son, that the keys to the kingdom belong to the Son, that ultimately all of this is a promise and a prophecy of the coming of Jesus as a king. And when you hear this language of David and throne, David was a king and the prophecy and the promise was given in second Samuel seven, that through David would come Solomon and through them would come a a kingly Davidic ruling line. And that ultimately through them would come one who would be a king of kings, that he would establish a kingdom that would never end and would continue forever, that he would return and rule from an eternal throne. And so everyone was awaiting, where, where is this woman who will have a baby, this woman who is a virgin, this woman who will have a son, who will come as a king? Where is that woman? Where is that son? Where is that kingdom? And Gabriel says, your womb, Mary, has been chosen by God. Ladies, let me tell you that motherhood is ministry. That motherhood is ministering. And Mary's ministry will be as the mother of God. And that Jesus comes as a king with a kingdom. And he comes ultimately to establish a throne. Let me say this. The big problem we have is that we live culture up, not kingdom down. That's the problem. That's why everybody's angry. Everybody's angry and nobody knows what to do because you can look to the left or you can look to the right and there really isn't hope unless you look up that ultimately this culture will come to an end. This nation will come to an end that all kingdoms and kings will come to an end. That everything as we know it will come to an end. This world has an expiration date. This culture has an expiration date. You and I have an expiration date. That there is an end and that ultimately the Lord Jesus is coming. And that if we were to see him right now, we would not see him. This is so crucial. I need you. I I need you to understand this. One of the things that concerns me about the season of Christmas, everybody thinks of Jesus as he was, not as he is. They think of him in a manger, not on a throne. They think of him in humility, not in glory. They think of him being cared for by Mary, not returning to judge the nations. If you were to see the Lord Jesus today, you would see him high and exalted, seated on a throne. You would see him surrounded by angels crying out day and night, holy, Holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Heaven and earth are full of his glory. You would see him dispatching angels. You would be aware of his rule over kings and kingdoms. You would see that he has set a day upon which he will return and judge the world. You would see that ultimately everything that we are laboring for, everything that we are voting for, everything that we are hoping for ultimately comes to an end when the kingdom returns and the king begins his reign. And I need you to understand that ultimately Jesus comes in humility, but he's coming again in glory. The first time he was in a manger, the second time he will be seated on a throne. And from that throne, he will rule all cultures and nations. Here's what this means. You need to know that if you belong to the Lord Jesus, we know the end. And in the end, Jesus returns. And in the end, Jesus wins. And those who are on team Jesus are part of the victory parade. You need to know that as you slug it out in the culture that is cursed and the world that is fallen in which we live. Now, that being said, what this gives for us is this tremendous insight that ultimately our lives are not to be lived 
Culture up, but kingdom down. Kingdom down. Who is our king? What is he like? We forgive because he forgives. We love because he loves. We give because he gives. We are generous because he is generous. We pursue those who are far away because he has pursued us when we were far away. That we don't look at people based upon their race or their age or their income or their intellect, but rather their integrity. And that's what he sees in the heart of Mary. That ultimately the problem is for so many of us, we're living culture up rather than kingdom down. I need you to know that at the heart of the Trinity Church is this deep, profound, unshakable belief that our King is alive, that He is ruling and reigning, that He is seated on a throne, that He hears our prayers, that we enjoy His presence, and that this is to be an outpost of the kingdom, that the Trinity Church belongs to this King, and that it is under His throne and rule. And when people enter into God's presence in this house, Ultimately, they need to experience a foreshadowing and a foretaste of the kingdom, a place where there is life-giving, soul-satisfying, truth from God's word, love from God's people, hope for God's future. And what that means is we want to invite people into the presence of God with the people of God to sing the praises of God, because ultimately we live under the provision of that God. And so we want to be an outpost to the kingdom, bringing the kingdom lifestyle, bringing the kingdom ethic, bringing the kingdom power to the rest of the culture. And ultimately, that's what the church of Jesus Christ is and does. Even at some point, the church as we know it will come to an end, but the kingdom will endure forever. And the kingdom of God has an outpost on the earth called the church. And that's why we're here. And so all of this is under this understanding of a kingdom from the line of David and a throne that is for Jesus Christ alone. So I want you to think about what does the kingdom look like and how is my life to reflect the kingdom to the culture, not echoing the culture, reflecting the culture to my king, because that's an offense to him. What is God like? What is God's kingdom like? Then that's how our lives, our church, our businesses, and our family are supposed to be ordered after that perfect precedence and pattern. All of this is revealed and unveiled to a teenage girl who is perhaps illiterate in a very small town who was just planning her wedding. And the story continues, that we should rejoice at God's will. And Mary said to the angel, now let me say there's a difference between a question and unbelief. A question says, okay, I believe that's gonna happen. How is that gonna happen? Unbelief is God, the answer is no. Mary said to the angel, how will this be since I'm a virgin? True or false, ladies? That's a fair question, <laughs> right? Like, okay, you're gonna have a baby. Uh, how? Okay, uh, just let me know, you know what the plan is, right? Give me the Ikea sheet of all the directions, you know, Just tell me what to do. The angel answered her. The Holy Spirit will come upon you. It's a miracle that Jesus will have an earthly mother, but he will not have a biological father. And the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child be born will be called Holy, the Son of God, that Jesus is holy. Isn't it amazing that Jesus comes from this family and he's the most important, significant person in the history of the world. In fact, we break our entire calendar around the birth of this man, Jesus, into BC, before Christ, AD, Anno Domini, the year of our Lord. More songs have been sung about him, more paintings painted of him, more books written regarding him than anyone who has lived in the history of the world. And it wasn't because he was rich, he was poor. It wasn't because he was powerful, but because he was powerless. And it wasn't because he came from a big city, he came from a small country village. But the difference was who he was and who he is. That ultimately he comes as the one who is holy and the son of God. That he comes as the representative of the kingdom of God. And by holy, what that means is that he is set apart, that he is different, that he is other. The number one attribute of God listed more than any other attribute of God in the Bible is the holiness of God. That we are sinful and God is holy. Therefore, we do not have Jesus as simply the best among us. There is a line down human history and on one side are all of us sinners. On the other side is one person, the Lord Jesus Christ, and he is our savior. 
He alone is holy. We are unholy. We are sons of our fathers and daughters of our fathers. He alone is the son of God and he comes as the savior of the sinners. All of this is revealed to Mary. And I love you and I'm glad to teach you. But if you're not a Christian, let me say, do not, you cannot, you must not make Jesus simply the best among us. He's entirely different than all of us. He alone is without sin. He alone is the son of God. He is the alone is God become a man. And all of this is revealed to her that he will come as the son of God. How will Mary respond to this? How would you respond to this? You're a teenage girl thinking about your wedding dress, writing love notes to your betrothed boyfriend. You're wondering what your honeymoon will be like. And then the angel shows up and the vision for your life is altogether, ultimately, totally obliterated. This was not her plan. This is God's plan. This is not her vision. This is God's vision. Division literally means two visions. There is division when you have a vision for your life and God has a vision for your life. And at this point, how Mary responds determines whether or not there is division. Here's what she says. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. And this is in the sixth month with whom who was called barren. And the angel says, for nothing will be impossible with God. My dear friend, what is impossible with God? My friend, what is impossible with God? Nothing. Nothing is impossible with God. God can bring a dead person forth from a grave. God can put a baby in a barren elderly woman's womb. God can enter into human history through the womb of a poor peasant girl who's a teenager. God can heal you. God can answer your prayer. God can love you. God can forgive you. God can save you. God can deliver you. God can come again for you. God can set up a kingdom for you. God can crush your enemies and God can wipe your tears. Nothing, 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 nothing is impossible with God. Nothing is impossible with God. And what this allows, this allows the heart to begin to hope. It begins us to hope for the future. And that is the answer to our fears. That God is with me and God is good and nothing is impossible for God. And God will not leave me nor forsake me. Therefore, his goodness and his power, they go with me. Now, Mary has to respond. See, when God speaks, we have to respond. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant. I am the servant of the Lord. This is an amazingly mature response for a young woman, amen? Was Mary's vision for her life a bad vision? No. God just had a different vision. Was God's vision for her life harder or easier than the vision she had for her life? Much harder. And she says, I am the Lord's servant. She takes upon herself the disposition of a servant. Jesus learned to be a servant from his mother. Her son comes along and echoes her and he says, I didn't come to be served, but to serve. Men who are single, hear me. Your children will become like their mother. So be careful who you marry. Jesus bears a family resemblance in terms of character to his mother. She is a humble servant who trusts the Lord. He is a humble servant who trusts the Lord. She says, let it be according to your word. He says in the garden, not my will, your will be done. Jesus' character begins with the example of his mother Mary, who is a servant that surrenders. She is a servant who surrenders. 
her vision and her will for her life, for God's vision and God's will for her life. And it says the angel departed from her because once you have surrendered and submitted to God's word and God's will and God's ways, there is nothing left to say. There is just simply much to be done. Today, we all stand with Mary. We all have a vision for our life, a plan, a hope, a dream. We're praying for it. We're longing for it. We're working on it. We're laboring toward it. And the word of God comes to Mary. And Mary says, I'm his servant and I surrender. Whatever his vision is for my life, I receive it. Your vision for your life at some point will need to be surrendered for God's vision for your life. Um, When I was in my 20s and I started preaching, I would have said this and I would have meant this, but I would not have understood this. Um, my vision for my life and my family, I believe, was a good one. Grace and I met at 17, married at 21, started having kids at 25, 26. And my vision was we would live in Seattle. That was my vision. And we had to move many times for safeties. There was a lot of, there was a lot of safety issues regarding our family. And finally, I got two-acre property huge trees. I put a big swing for my kids in the yard. My boys could go out and shoot airsoft. The dog could run around. My kids could play outside and be safe. Upon purchasing the home, it needed a lot of work, so I served along with my dad as the general contractor, and for six months, we ran the crews, renovating this old house, getting it set up for my family. I painted everything the way that I wanted it painted, set up the kitchen just for my wife, got everything set up. And my vision was to be an elderly man who enjoyed Christmas in this house with his family. Brick floors, big windows, huge fireplace, chopping wood with my boy, throwing it in the fire, sitting around as a family. We entered into that home. We enjoyed Christmas there. Shortly after that, Grace's dad died. And I thought in my heart, well, now I'm kind of the patriarch in the family. And my home will be the place that we enjoy Christmas and holidays and we entertain and my family lives. And then one day, Grace and I will invite our grandchildren into this home. And it was extraordinary because we had a vision and then God spoke. We were both in separate rooms and God spoke to us audibly and said we were released and that season was done. And Grace walked in and she looked at me and she said, I feel like God spoke to me. I said, I feel like God spoke to me. She said, what did he tell you? I said, well, I don't want to influence you. You tell me what he told you and I'll tell you what he told me. (laughs) And Grace said, we're released. I said, that's what the Lord told me. We're released. That, that, That this vision was now surrendered. And so we ultimately moved, left all of our possessions in that home. We came down to Arizona. We believed that God wanted us here. Um, And we didn't know that God would give us this building or you wonderful people, so it's really good to see you. You guys are a blessing, and every time I see you, I feel very, very blessed. Thank you. Thank you. And uh, we left all of our possessions in the home, and we were renting down here, a little VRBO. We call it the stinky camp house because it smelled like Satan's breath. And I was waiting for my house in Seattle to sell so that we could then purchase here and then we could move all of our stuff down from Seattle. And it was a Saturday and the alarm went off on my phone. And I thought, oh no, somebody's broken into our home or stealing or vandalizing. So I sent the realtor there and he called me and he was shaking on the phone, could barely speak. And he said, "Uh, I'm glad you weren't here. I'm glad you weren't here. And I said, I don't understand what you're talking about. He said, well, I'll send the photos. So that on my phone, I got this photo. That's, that's our home. That's actually our bedroom. Um, I take naps on Saturday, 
and under that tree is my bed. And if I was taking a nap on Saturday, I would have died and my wife and children would have been left without a father and husband. That was not my vision. I jumped on a plane, I flew up. I left my wife and kids here. And I remember it was the middle of the night I arrived. It was raining and stormy. And I remember that uh, the gate was not functioning because the power was out. So in the rain, I had to hop the fence. I had a flashlight. And it was surreal. I'm looking at down trees all over the property. Some of them, you know, maybe 200 feet long. I don't even know. And then I get to this portion of our home and I'm climbing through our dresser and our bed. I'm soaking wet. I'm freezing cold. And I'll be honest with you, I was scared. Lord, what, what do you have for us? All of our possessions are here. I can't even secure my family's possessions. My wife and kids are in Arizona. I can't buy a home until we sell this home. I can't sell this home until we fix this home. My vision was, Lord, this is where I would have my grandbabies over for Christmas. And I remember being in that moment, standing in the woods, having a conversation with God, something like this. Um, Lord, I'm a father. I got five kids in Arizona. But right now, I'm your son, and Dad, I need help. Um, And so I I had a conversation with the Lord where I, I claimed his promise. I said, Lord... I know I'm afraid, but in the scriptures, you promise that you won't leave me. So I'm asking, Lord, that I sense your presence and my family senses your presence. And I remember having a conversation with the Lord saying, Lord, this was not my vision, but I surrender my vision and I receive your vision. I don't know what you have for us. I did remember telling the Lord, I will not receive this as anything other than an adventure. This is a crazy adventure we're going to go on. And I said, Lord, help me to see your provision and grace along the way so that we have things to rejoice in. And provide for us. And in that moment, I just felt like I had a vision and I surrendered it. And it was... It was a moment of deliverance. And it was a moment of healing. And it deepened my relationship with the Father that since that time, I have grown closer to Him. I understand His heart. He's grown me in empathy and love. He's made me so appreciative of my wife, Grace. He has built our friendship. And He has spiritually matured our family. And he has done supernatural things to bring us here to be with you. And so I don't know where you're at today. My guess is if you're not there, you've been there or will be there, that at some point you need to take your vision and surrender it. And know that God is good and he's your dad and that he'll take your hand and he'll walk with you. And he has a plan for you. And his plan is good for you. And the first item on his agenda is to experience his presence. So I'm going to ask you to raise your hands and I'm going to pray for you. Father God, thank you for these people that I have the great honor and joy of leading and feeding through your word. Lord, as a word came to Mary and a word came to Joseph, I pray that you would have a specific word for each of us today. Lord God, for those that are having anxiety and fear as Mary did, or questions as Mary had, Lord God, would you answer them with your presence? Lord God, for those who 
are worried about the next season of life because the vision they had for their life is not going to happen. Would you allow them like Mary to right now, in the strong name of Jesus, surrender that vision and to accept the posture of a humble servant? Lord God, for those who have been carrying tremendous burdens to make life work, would you now, Father, remove that burden from them? Let them do what is right and leave the results in your hands. Holy Spirit, we invite you into this place, this kingdom outpost. Holy Spirit, we invite you to be present here with us. We invite you to bring the Father's love, the Father's comfort, the Father's touch. We invite you to bring his affection and his devotion. Holy Spirit, would you please allow us to enjoy the presence of God as the answer to our fears, as the need of our heart, as the longing of our soul. And Lord, we look forward to the return of the Lord Jesus when this world as we know it comes to an end and all there is is your kingdom. We look forward to all gathering around your throne and singing your praises as as we enjoy your provision. Holy Spirit, I pray for my friends right now, a moment to meet with you, to be comforted by you, to be healed by you, to be encouraged by you, to receive hope from you, to have a burden lifted by you. And Lord God, we thank you for the example of a a poor, perhaps illiterate, unmarried teenage girl from a small town who is a towering giant of faith. We ask for faith to trust you as she did so that our lives could be fruitful as hers was, so that like she did, we could welcome the Lord Jesus in whose name we pray. Amen.